Welcome to Blink of an Eye, life stories of trauma, loss, awakenings, and epiphanies, beginning with one mom's journal entries recorded in real time of a catastrophic diving accident rendering her teenage son paralyzed from the neck down, and the courageous fight to save his life. Told through unedited text and journal entries and inspiring guest interviews, Blink of an Eye will take you on a powerful journey of advocacy and hope and an unvarnished look at the true nature of our relationships and interconnectedness in the face of an event that changes everything. Episode 6 The Woulda, Coulda, Shouldas. Life can change in the blink of an eye. August 6th. Day two. Archer remained fairly motionless. Billy arrived back into Archer's room and he and I both watched him closely. But we could barely look each other in the eye. It was so painful. I had a strong suspicion what was going on for Billy. The woulda, coulda, shouldas. I know they have plagued him before. And we had written about them in our book, Being Relational. And I imagined they were up to their no good again. You know, I think God and all our children's guardian angels have spared Billy over the years. His tormented lament of the what he could have done, what he should have done, what he would have done. We had five healthy children and only a few accidents for the most part. But when and if one of the children did injure themselves badly, defined as a way that stopped them from playing sports, Billy was devastated. I imagine a lot of dads might be like that. Maybe your husband is like that too. It seems a particular curse for men. I I don't know. But for Billy... He usually turned the woulda, coulda, shoulda sword on himself with a bad case of the why didn't I do X or why did I let him do Y or I should have, I could have. And on rare occasion, he could wield that sword at me too. Louise, you should have, could have. And when it's really bad, it's when he doesn't say it but I know he's thinking it. Today, I felt I could read his mind. Why did you let him work at the beach club? Why did you let him work in Cape May? Why did you let him stay there that summer? Why did you say it was okay he didn't have to play club lacrosse all summer? Why did you let him go to work that day? It was endless. It was painful because there is a kernel of truth in every accusation. And I had had a taste of it myself over the years. I never much cared for that line of thinking, though, because it was incomplete, and I knew it caused suffering. As a divorce mediator, I'm sort of on alert for that kind of thinking, as I have seen too many divorcing clients self-sabotage and eat themselves alive with the woulda, coulda, shouldas. I know it happens a lot, and probably the most agreeable, go-along-to-get-along kind of people are the ones most plagued. You know, I even remember the woulda-coulda-shouldas came up spontaneously in my interview with our dear friend Davis Barsby, whom I've already introduced you to. Davis had some good advice about it as we looked back on August 5th and 6th, 2015. I know you thought he was pranking around. And I want to talk to you about that. Because I don't want you to ever, ever have any regret, shame, guilt over having that thought. Because I think maybe you did. I wish I could have got him out even sooner. And (laughs) I do have regrets on that day, of course. 
you always want to do something better. Always. And that's something I think about, you know, from time to time. And I appreciate you saying that. And I love your family so much. And I'll always want to be able to do something I could have done better. And that just comes down to the person who I am, you know, how I think about things. You think about things over and over again. You're a good man and a good person. And, you know, it's one of those things you will learn as a father when your daughter, God forbid that she ever disappoints you or does anything wrong. But she will because she's human. And she will because you allow her and still love her. And that's the, that's, that's the beauty of living, that we are fragile and we also are strong and resilient. We can, as parents, live with all the, why did I ever you know, let him do this? Or why did I, why did I go back to Baltimore for that, that frickin' mediation? Why did I let him work at the beach club that summer? I mean, you know, we could, we could go yeah. crazy on, why did I not ask, why did I say, oh, we're in a board shorts to go take a swim? Maybe you should just wait until you know you're off work and come back to the cove and take a swim. I mean, you know, we, could, we could just play out all the crazy what-if scenarios. What-ifs are a dangerous thing. Yes, they'll kill you. They really will kill you if you stay stuck in the what-ifs. It's hard not to sometimes. It is. Yes, it is hard not to sometimes. My sense is that the what-if thinking and the woulda-coulda ruminating is especially a trap for those who have a strong conscience, like Davis and like Billy. Have you ever been plagued with the woulda, coulda, shouldas? Or know or live with someone who has? Oh, they're haunting. They can be incessant and they tear you up and rip apart the relationships you care the most about. And at the very least, they can keep you up night after night. And that shoulda sword, oh, it's sharp and it pokes and cuts. I so wanted to relieve Billy of the battle. It had fallout for both of us. If only I had a magic wand to combat that sword. I looked up at him as he turned his eyes away. And I said, I'm so sorry. I am so deeply sorry and I was for everything and for every shoulda he could conjure up in his mind it was very still in the room it seemed like we were just too beyond falling into each other's arms and making it all right again the beeping of a machine started up and a nurse entered the room and leaned over Archer's bed to check something. I sat on one side of Archer and Billy was on the other. He seemed so far away. After she left, I said to Billy, it's okay if you want to leave and take a break. Maybe go for a walk. And he said, no. Why don't you go ahead? And so I did. I exited Archer's room and walked a ways back into that other little hallway. Oh, please, Lord, please, please help us. Please have mercy on our family. I began walking. The prayer warrior lifts I had felt on and off all morning about Archer seemed far away. I really needed prayers for Billy and me. I looked again at my phone. 
earlier that morning, Harry Johnson, a dear friend of mine in Baltimore, who's actually an OBGYN, Dr. Harry Johnson. <laughs> I know. Isn't that a riot? We always laugh. Harry texted me, Liz, what hospital are you in? Send me an address and I'll FedEx Lourdes water I just brought back. Oh, thank you, Harry. Oh, my goodness. I also realized no one knew where we were. I quickly texted him, 1925 Pacific Avenue, Atlantic City, New Jersey. And I stood there in that little hallway and I began to cut and paste and text that address of the hospital to a lot of people. I just knew Archer would need to see his friends. I had another ongoing silent prayer in my heart as if I were sending it to each of those friends. Please come see him. Do not be afraid. We need you. I knew they were all far away, at least three hours, and that most of them would be on vacation in August, too, probably at other beaches. But I sent my little prayers, and I held out hope. It's funny, you know, to realize your whole world is turning upside down and no one even knows where you are. I mean, of course not. Why would they? Atlanticare was not exactly the closest hospital to Cape May. And not that many hospitals have trauma centers. But Atlantic City was the chosen destination. Who chose this hospital? I knew so little about hospitals. Who did send Archer here? I had no idea. A nurse walked by me as I stood texting in that little hallway. The family waiting room is right there, miss, she said, as she pointed to the door around the corner. I knew that door. I knew this hallway. And I knew that little corner of this hallway. But I looked up, and you won't believe what I saw that I hadn't noticed before. All along the wall, there were these shiny, laminated, large plaques of Hospital Achievement Awards. I looked closer for the highest numbers of various organ and tissue donations. The wall was filled going back years and right up to 2014. Atlantic Care Hospital was being honored for their achievements in kidney donations, heart donations, liver donations. My stomach turned. How could they put these here? I mean, I know these organs save life, but it seems so wrong to put these achievements right here. How could they display all these awards in the trauma unit? Hundreds of organs, hundreds of deaths right here. Why'd they choose this wall, this wall, right by the family waiting room? Why'd they do that? It's heartless. It was not kind. It didn't feel right that we were in this hospital. The people who should be celebrated were the donors by name who lost and gave their lives. Hospital Achievement Awards. I felt sick. I knew I couldn't stand in the hallway, so I opened the door into the family waiting room. It was fairly empty. I scanned and could see the Sempt Kids base camp with the Caesars, sleeping blankets, and pillows piled on a couple chairs. A man I hadn't seen before, nodding off uncomfortably on that one sofa. And the Hispanic family. I remembered them from last night. They had been in such distress, crying. There they were again. There were five or six of them, and they were huddled along the wall in those utilitarian chairs, like holding and clinging to each other. And one of the women and a younger boy, they were just sobbing. Oh, it broke my heart. I felt so bad for them. 
And I also felt so drawn to them for some reason. They were a big family, just like ours. That man on the sofa got up and seemed a little irritated. So I walked over to them and I tried to say something to the Hispanic women. And I asked, English? Do you speak English? They shook their heads no. The boy who had stopped to look at me flung his arms and head back into the bosom of the older woman, tears rolling down his cheeks, and she looked equally dissolved. I was sad I did not speak Spanish. So I gently stretched out my hand as I had this urge to comfort her in some way. Just then, an older little Hispanic man, broad, stout, sturdy man, maybe their father or brother or uncle, quietly crept through the door into the waiting room. The way they looked up and were so attentive, I could tell he carried great respect. He spoke to them in Spanish. I think he was delivering them a report. And then they all began rapidly speaking at once over each other and were very agitated. And then they all started to cry. I was just standing there. It died down a little, and the man nodded to me. I asked him if he spoke English, and he said, see, sí. okay. Little by little, I learned that it was his brother, their brother, uncle, who had been in a serious motorcycle accident where the motorcycle landed on him, crushing his pelvis and severing his leg. The Hispanic man told me, I, I think this is what he meant, that he had lost a great deal of blood and that they were still looking at the accident site for, oh my God, his foot. Oh, please, Lord, help him. I understood that they all wanted to be together with him. He told me he and his family had been told by the nurses they had to leave the hospital room and could not stay. How could that be that this family was not allowed to be with their loved one? It was causing them to suffer so much. That man injured on the motorcycle, he needed their love. It caused me to suffer as I listened. The distress of being cut off from connection with your loved ones, I know is real. I told the man I would return. I left the room and walked down the corridor with the beeps and the buzzers. They were getting louder as the day wore on. I found a nurse sitting in front of a computer in the trauma unit donut hole. I explained about the family who really needed help. And she told me, hospital policy only allows for two people in a room at a time, only one after a certain hour. How could that be? I said to her, no, I don't think so. There have been times when we've had three people in our room. And she said, hospital policy. What can I say? And I said, but families need each other. They're in the family waiting room sobbing. You know, I think she softened. She was almost apologetic for the rule. And she said as much. She said, I wish it wasn't a rule too. Same, I said. Please consider just allowing this family to all be together. They're all here. They're in such distress. It would be so helpful for them and probably for their brother or uncle if they could just be together. Although I honestly had no idea what his situation really was, but it didn't matter to me. I knew their distress, and I do believe 
that what heals us all is unity and with our families. But she wouldn't budge. I said, you know it's the right thing to do. But she just looked away. I remember I got a little irritated. And so I pushed her a little bit. Why can't you do this for them? I asked her. It won't hurt anything, will it? It would be good for this family. She kept staring straight at her computer. And then she said, wish I could, but I can't. I remember I tried to then bargain with her. Come on. How about allowing them all in just one time as a compromise or even just three or four of them all together for just a little bit of time together? Her answer, I could get in trouble. So what? I said, and then it would be the right thing to do. You'd get in trouble for doing a good thing the right thing. But she went back to her computer work. And I said, where's your boss? I'll ask. And then you won't get in trouble. And she said, I'm sorry. The rule is no more than two visitors. Wow. I was really stunned. I was stunned by that rule. And I was stunned by her. And I sort of felt sorry for her. She was clearly stuck in the middle. I wanted to believe that if it were up to her, she would have said, okay. I mean, I wasn't asking her to change the rule. I was asking her to use her discretion for the sake of humanity and doing what is good and right. I also knew I just attracted attention to my family and the privilege of three of us on and off all that morning and afternoon being with Archer, and no one said anything. And I realized that would be no more. But no one had told me the rule either. And then... Why should our family be allowed and not their family? Another stretcher was coming down the hall, and she told me I needed to get out of the way. The place was getting busier in the late afternoon. That only two people at a time rule, I don't think it promotes healing. I mean, I can understand it as a general rule at a management level, but nurses should be given discretion for family cohesiveness, for patient well-being. It would build goodwill in hospitals. I would think that hospitals would give their nurses discretion, trusting their good judgment. I mean, they're the ones closest to the patient families, it seemed. I mean, maybe Atlanta Care Hospital did. I guess that nurse was just too scared to take a risk for the right reason. Maybe she had a heartless boss. I bet there are other nurses who would have allowed that family some time together. And I tell you this story five years later. I know a bunch of nurses now, and I know they would. As she got up from her computer station to walk deeper into the donut hole, I turned to walk back to the Hispanic family. And then I turned around and I said kind of loudly, hey, any good supervisor would understand a deviation from that rule for the right reason. But she was already up and gone. I came back to the family waiting room and reported to the Hispanic man. I tried. I'm so sorry, but I was not successful. I tried to explain as plainly as I could, knowing the Hispanic women, young and old, and the boy were watching me closely. So I said, really talking to all of them, 
there is a hospital rule. And I made the timeout gesture with my hand, you know, like, a, like the T that a coach on the sidelines does when he or she wants to talk to their players. The rule is only two people at a time in the hospital room as I held up my two fingers. And then I made the safe gesture, you know, like an umpire in baseball, you know, like that's it. Two, that's it. And then I made a sad face and stuck out my lower lip. The women murmured and the man nodded his face earnestly. And then he sort of brightened with C, C, as if he understood something new. He turned to his family members who were tear stained, but very quietly and attentively watching and listening to my every word. And he began speaking quickly to them in Spanish. All their heads were nodding as if they then understood, but they all stopped crying. I didn't understand. I thought I was delivering bad news, but you know, I realized they learned the policy which gave them some kind of relief. They were not cast out. They could go in just two at a time. I literally watched them straighten up and hold their heads up again. I walked back to our room thinking about that Hispanic family because their family cultural norm was to be all together all six or seven of them, and so was ours. I wondered to myself, why can't hospitals allow for different cultural needs? Why can't they allow and give discretion? I mean, it's complicated, yes, but discretion is the highest of the ethical standards in any profession. You shall, you should, you may, if, and it doesn't have to be that complicated if the guiding principle is relational, healing, and well-being for humanity. I really do believe that so much suffering in hospitals could be alleviated with a North Star of healing and a compassionate response. Heck, just explaining to them the rule itself eased their suffering because then it gave them an answer to their why. As a mediator all these years, I can tell you that when people are not given the answer to their why, whether they agree with the answer or not, whether they like it or not, whether they say they don't care to know it or not, they are left to fill in the void of an unanswered why. An aspect of our humanity men and women, and children too. I've witnessed it thousands of times. The human brain seeks certainty. And when we don't have an answer to our why, it's easy to assume the worst. And when you wonder and have a why, and people don't tell you the reason, or don't tell you the truth, the real truth that answers the why, it usually just makes matters worse. Even that nurse, while I wanted her to change her leadership approach, she at least told me her reason for my why. She was scared she'd get in trouble. That was honest. I didn't like it, and I didn't think it was very caring, compassionate, or thought through, but it was honest. Her truthfulness was grist for the mill, as my mom used to say, the woulda, coulda, shoulda mill. I started to leave the family waiting room to head back to Archer. I turned to the Hispanic man and said, there are lots of nurses here. Ask every nurse again and again. Maybe one will say yes. And you can all be together as I put my hands together in a prayer formation. He nodded, see, and smiled. Oh, but the comings and the goings all day were constant. 
They really were. And all the while, Archer slept, opening his eyes ever so slightly, ever so infrequently. It was almost like he was in a coma. I wondered what he was thinking, dreaming. Maybe he was back in the blackness. I don't know. You cannot believe the number of people who were in and out of Archer's room that day. It was chaotic. I asked Petey, who had stayed most of the morning with Archer, if he could go buy me a couple more back-to-school notebooks at the Walgreens. I thought I would use one to start keeping track for thank-you notes of who was sending us things, like flowers and a bag of stuff from the CVS pharmacy my dear friend Joanne Quenzer from Philadelphia had brought up earlier that morning before anyone else arrived. Joanne is one of our beach neighbors, and she and another neighbor on our street, Ann Cassidy, drove all the way up from Cape May, bringing a large bag filled with stuff from the CVS. They must have gone down the aisles of the drugstore, picking up anything they thought we might need. There were pens and stickies and post-it notes and scotch tape and the latest People magazine and Better Homes and Garden magazine and mints and gum and aspirin and Tums and Gas-X and deodorant. There, there was some weird stuff too, like dry hair shampoo and Tabasco sauce, but all really thoughtful stuff as I peered into that chock-full plastic grocery bag. So kind. And my other big kids, who had gone back to Cape May, were texting that food had been dropped off in our kitchen, and they had no idea from whom. Angels, I wanted to send a thank you note to each one. I recently interviewed my friend Joanne Quenzer, as we did a look back to August 5th and 6th, 2015, we've never done that before. Just, I, I could just feel you coming through that telephone and that text message and your pain and everything. And I could see you in my mind driving like a maniac to get to Atlantic City. And that's then what I focused on. If I can't do anything to help Archer, maybe I can help Louise. Maybe I can say something nice. I don't know. Do something nice. What is there to do though, really? What can a, anyone on this physical earth do at this point? Pray. That's it. So when Ann and I said, well, we're going to go visit, what, what do we do? What can we bring? What can we bring Archer? We're bringing him our prayers, our faces, our voices. And that's great. But maybe we could do something or the family member watching over him because there will always be a family member watching over him right now. Let's bring something for that person. Sugar, salt, a magazine, grade CVS, get what we can. But the last thing I put in that bag was a little vial of lavender oil from a Cistercian Abbey, Notre Dame Abbey à la Senenc. Senenc, it's in, near Gord in the south of France. These monks tend this lavender and pray. That's all they do is work and pray. Maybe this oil will bring somebody some healing somewhere in the same family. We'll put that in the bag. Oh my goodness. I still have that beautiful little glass bottle of lavender oil with the simple homemade label. I have always wondered where that special bottle came from, from my Kate May neighbor giving it to us from her travels when we were in Atlantic City. It's in my bathroom in my home right now. This essential oil helped Archer breathe and brought me tranquility, and I have refilled it with other pure essential lavender oil I purchased, <laughs> yes, in Lourdes. It's true, from the same Cistercian monks 
who would have guessed that precious bottle was in the CVS bag with all the other stuff? Little epiphanies. We are all so interconnected. Thank you, Joanne. When Pete left to head back to Cape May, Paula arrived. And then my sister, Elizabeth Sanborn from Maryland, arrived. Archer opened his eyes ever so slightly when they came. He did the same for Pete. I could tell their presence made him happy. Oh, I was happy to see them too. It was so refreshing to see them. I knew it was because we all loved each other, but also because they were familiar. Familiarity can give such relief. Isn't that the truth? Have you ever thought about that? When everything else is so unknown, familiarity is such a comfort. You know, all these people in a trauma unit coming in and out of Archer's room was stressful. It gave me some anxiety because I didn't know what they were doing to Archer or what they were checking for. And because I didn't know who was actually part of the hospital staff. Because shortly after Elizabeth arrived, a young man with slick back, coiffed black hair and a tight shirt sauntered right into the room, took one look at Archer, who admittedly looked pretty terrible, and tossed his business card on Archer's bed and said, I'm the physical therapist, office across the street. You'll need me. Who are these people? I guess workplaces have gotten so casual now that not every doctor wears a white coat and not every hospital employee wears a uniform or some outfit easily identifiable of who they are and for whom they work. I had no way of knowing who was with the hospital and who wasn't. How'd that guy get in here? It was a little disturbing, actually, because it also seemed as if Archer's room, not Archer, but his room was also on some sort of checklist. A number of visitors from the hospital and otherwise would just walk right on in, have a quick look at a monitor or something, check their notepad, and just leave. Or were literally just walking in and leaving literature. There was zero interaction. There was no, hello, I'm so-and-so, so-and-so, and shaking my hand. I mean, isn't that the regular thing you do when you meet someone? Of course it is, because that's what your mother and father and your grandfather and your grandmother taught you. You extend your hand and say, hello, it's basic good manners. Who were these people? Some others who came in checked Archer for something. They did leave a business card. But most, I had no idea who they were. There were even a few who popped their head in from around the half-drawn curtain and said with a clipboard in hand, How are things? What a question. I think I just stared at them. Who are you? Was I supposed to just say, fine? I bet there were at least 20 people who came into Archer's room that day and we did not know. I had an idea, though, to use another notebook for visitors and lay it on the counter of the cabinets to the left as you entered Archer's room by the sink where the doctors washed their hands with a sign that said, please sign in with a pen. So when Pete returned with the notebooks, I wrote on the front of one of them, visitors, with one of Joanne's black Sharpies. And I wrote across the top of each page for about the first 10 pages, date and time, name, title, role. It was the only way I knew how to keep track of all these people who arrived or breezed through, and especially for when I was not in the room for even a moment. 
going to the ladies room or trading places with Billy or the kids or meeting visiting friends in the family waiting room. My sign-in system never really worked that day as the response seemed to be, oh, I won't be back. And I said, it's just to know who you are. And then they'd say, oh, so-and-so, but they wouldn't sign the notebook. There was real resistance. I did get a bunch of business cards though. I asked the nurses to please sign in too, but they didn't either. And I, I told them my reason for that. I told them my why. A couple rolled their eyes like, I don't think I'm supposed to be doing that. Or I better not. I might get in trouble. Others sort of giggled and looked down to show me their name badge dangling from their lanyard. I just thought it all so strange. I mean, it seemed like basic hospitality to me. It was our room they were entering. It was true that at least the nurses, unlike the others, were fairly easy to spot, mainly because they were wearing nurses-like uniforms, but they did have these lanyards around their necks with a laminated photo card like dangling at the end of each one. But it was hard to see their names because their lanyards also had a bunch of other Chotskys hanging from them and they would swing around as they moved. It was awkward to try and catch a name. And I didn't want to stare because, I mean, I'd be staring right at their bellies or their crotches, and that wouldn't be polite. I then wondered if they had a business card. I just wanted to know who they were because they were all doing something to Archer or checking one of Archer's monitors, and he had a bunch that I did not understand. When I asked them about a business card, a couple of them sort of tittled like, that's funny. But I didn't mean for it to be funny. I wanted to know who they were. Business cards are a basic courtesy. My mom was big on Emily Post, and Emily Post always said good manners were about making others feel comfortable. Most of the people at Atlanticare never even introduced themselves. They were busy in and out. You know, I wondered why the nurses didn't have business cards. I think they might want to. I can't say they have the most interaction with the patient or family because they didn't interact much. But they are the ones, at least as best I could see that day, who see the patient the most. Yeah, they'd go through a lot of cards, the way it looked like they took turns, but it would be a clear way to clarify roles. It'd be professional. And honestly, it would create some relationship so I could call them by name and maybe learn a little something about them. Well, since I wouldn't sign my notebook, every time a nurse came in, I did ask their name. And for those who were not too uncomfortable giving it to me, I wrote it in the back of my notebook on a list I started keeping just of nurses. During a recent interview with my sister, so much was flooding back to me that I'd forgotten about in those first 24 hours. She told me that when she had arrived at Atlantic Care Hospital and the third floor trauma unit, she had to wait in an outside waiting room. She said that there was a handwritten note on the wall, a notebook page taped to the wall that said, welcome anyone visiting Archer and please call 443. And it had my cell phone number. <laughs> you know, I had forgotten that. But yes, <laughs> I did that. It was all part of setting up base camp that I feel like we were starting to do that day. In some ways, the chaos was a blessing because I had to get my bearings and Archer was sleeping. I did ask about his sleeping and a nurse just told me that some patients take longer to fully come out of anesthesia. 
I wonder where he was then. Maybe awake, but with his eyes closed, just taking in all that was happening. And what happened? I don't know. I do know. I wanted to know who the medical staff were, who were treating, touching, and involved in any way in Archer's care. And I wanted to know who the strangers were. I also wanted to greet and welcome anyone who made the effort to come visit. But you know how all that came about? That I hung that note up earlier that day? Well, earlier, one of my kids had called me from Cape May to say they had heard through the grapevine that some local friends of Archer's from Cape May had driven up the Garden State Parkway almost an hour that morning with one of their moms, no less, to see Archer and sat in that outside waiting room for over two hours waiting and were not let in. I couldn't believe it. We were never told. And so they turned around and went home. I was devastated. And I was heartbroken for Archer. And I felt terrible for them. Making that trip and waiting so long for nothing. I was also a little miffed. I mean, why didn't the hospital tell us? Dewey told me the story was that when they knocked on the door to the trauma unit and said they were there to see Archer Sempt, they were told only two at a time could come in and the room was filled. But since we always had our two or more in the room and were never told that others were there and were never told the rule, we never made an opportunity. I was steamed. Oh, yes, I knew that rule now, and I knew they were strict about it. But, oh, what a loss. It was a big deal to drive an hour and then navigate that crazy parking garage and then have to pay for parking and then to have to sit for so long. That was when I went to my Joanne bag and I got some Joanne scotch tape and I made a note that I taped to the wall in that waiting room. Hospital staff didn't even see it because the room is just for the public. But I hoped friends of Archer's would see it. I went and asked the staff at the inside desk in the donut hole facing that entrance to please always let me know if there were ever any visitors for Archer Sempt. I told the man, it's most important that our 17-year-old son have visitors and we welcome all his friends. I said, please, please just tell them when they come in and call me and I'll make sure we only have two in the room. We can go in the family waiting room around the corner from our room. And I wrote down Archer Sempt and my cell phone number on one of the post-it notes Joanne brought me. And I asked them if they would put it on the computer or the counter to call me any time. Thank you, Joanne and Anne. That bag was so handy. You know what else I realized, though? Archer's young friends from the beach did not have my cell phone number and I did not have theirs. I thought I had the cell phone numbers of most of Archer's friends in Baltimore. Funny though, you know, the friends your teenagers might have and you don't even know who they all are. Yeah, I think it's hard for many of us as parents. Is it hard for you to stay connected to your teenage kids and know about their lives when you don't even have the telephone numbers or know who all your own kids are hanging out with? And with cell phones as the main way of communicating, as wonderful as they are, they create some real gaps. And one for us today was that Archer was certainly not checking his cell phone. 
oh my gosh, that reminded me. Archer's cell phone. I wondered where it was. I got help remembering thanks to my recent interview with our dear family friend and Archer's good friend, Danny Giannoskoli, who was coming over to the beach club from a nearby beach about the time the accident happened. Yeah, I, like I said, it happened really fast. It's surreal, but it was like, I'll, I'll get Archer's sunglasses, you know, or what should I do with them? Wow. You know, yeah. And his, and his shirt. Yeah. Yeah, right? Because you're, you're probably looking like there's Archer's shoes, his shirt. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's my job in the whole thing. That's my duty, I feel like. So I guess that was, that was my job to grab that stuff and bring it home. And I don't know if his um, phone was in that, um, in that group or if his phone was at home. Uh, but you had said, you, do you remember texting him that day? I think his phone was at the beach club because I think I remember him texting that he, he would come out. I remember telling Archer that when I had to go back for this um, emergency mediation, I had been upset with Archer and had taken his phone away from him. And then it's like, and then like, dang, you know, and now I need to leave. And like, I, I can't give him back his phone, but I can't leave him without a phone. <laughs> so crazy trying to piece it all back together. But you know what else is crazy? I just remembered about Archer's phone as I'm telling you this story. I had been mad at Archer a couple nights before for being out really late, not telling me where he was and not returning my phone call. I had taken away his cell phone as a natural consequence for two days, and he could experience how disconnecting it feels to need to get a hold of someone important to him, like Parker or his friend, Danny Giannoskoli, and not be able to. I had told him, I'd give it back on August 5th when he got home from work. And you know, I had totally forgotten. I had driven his phone to the beach club and dropped it off for him before I left to go back to Baltimore so I could make sure he had a phone. Can you believe that? Isn't that crazy? I mean, I still remember now because I was in a hurry to leave. And my car had been sitting for a few days in that hot sun. And when I got in, the seats were too hot to sit on. And I had to find a towel to sit on. And then I drove to the beach club, but I was in more of a hurry. And when I got there, well, since, since we're not members, I didn't want to just walk on the property. And I also didn't want to bother him at work. I knew he was busy in the kitchen, probably starting to clean up from his 86 French fry orders and his 56 pieces of bacon BLT lineup so he could then get ready for the daily 4 p.m. ice cream window that I knew he was manning that day. But I was in a hurry, and I just left his phone with another worker at the gate. Can you believe that? It was probably around 3.15 when I was there. And he went out to take a cool dip in the ocean around 3.45 p.m. I could have seen him. I should not have been in such a hurry. I should have just asked for him. I would have seen him again. Maybe, maybe I could have delayed him. I should have gone in. Maybe I would have given him a break to cool off and he would not have even gone in the ocean. Maybe, maybe he would have taken a different path running into the ocean. <laughs> oh, what a good as shit is. They can get to me too. Oh, please, Lord, please be with me. I know God has a plan in this somewhere for us. Please. Help me see it. Life can change in the blink of an eye. I think about all the families with a loved one in an intensive care unit in hospitals across the globe. ICUs are places of life and death. 
there is real suffering for patients, for families, and probably for staff too. And it's not an everyday occurrence for most people to lose someone they love. It's not. And I don't think it should be thought of as just an everyday occurrence in ICUs. We all have earned a compassionate response from others as part of our birthright because we're human and we're wired to give a compassionate response to each other. So many rules and regulations and competition and fear have built walls and barriers to our responding compassionately to others. How might you offer a compassionate response to someone today? Maybe it's to someone you just read about in the news during these crazy times. Maybe it's to yourself. How can we be compassionate with others if we don't love ourselves? For me, as I talk with you, my compassionate response today is for hospital ICU surgeons and staff. I know there is another side to what I experienced as a heartless display of achievement. It is noble to ensure that very sick or injured people who need organs or tissue to live get those organs. I know it takes a major collaborative effort to do that. I've actually been a trainer for donor foundations on how to talk with families about that. And I'm a donor myself on my own driver's license. But let's consider how we might reduce suffering today while we live. Maybe just one time today, you might do something for yourself or for someone else that reduces suffering. A kind word, a loving word, an acceptance word to yourself. I am a good person. To others, I will try to understand. An awareness of the torment the mind can weave and an acknowledgement of that because it's human. And then a kindness, whatever that is, for that torment. We can apologize for our peace. And we don't have to agree in order to accept someone else's truth. It's our emotions that are our greatest asset we have on the planet. And when we respond with care, with love, with compassion, we can change the world. Feel your emotions today, at least one of them. And feel it fully. And if it's causing you suffering, oh, release it with a good deep sigh, even if just momentary. And if it's bringing you joy, oh, offer that smile to everyone <laughs> and enjoy a good deep belly laugh. It's good for us. They are all part of the emotional landscape, all of our emotions. The more suffering you have endured and transformed to something joyful, the deeper will be your ability to respond to others with love and compassion. Life is so precious. Sending love. Hope for everything obtain everything. You've been listening to Blink of an Eye. We ask that you share this with anyone who may need inspiration, a lift, or who may relate. Never miss an episode. Please subscribe on our site, blinkofaneyepodcast.com, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen. If you have a story to share, please contact Louise Phipps Senf directly. 
louise at blinkofaneyepodcast.com. She would love to hear from you. 